This is Tracy Davis, and with me is my partner and co-host, Tanya Esposito, and this is the Financial Law Forum. Today, we're thrilled to have with us Walter Davis. Walter is the founding member of Peachtree Providence Partners Holding Company, LLC, which is an Atlanta-based private investment and consulting firm for small and middle market businesses. Walter's background in the financial services industry is extensive. He currently serves as chair of the Economic Inclusion Task Force. He was the founding member and CEO of a large minority-owned financial institution, um, Citrus Bank. He uh, worked in various capacities with large other financial institutions such as Bank of America, Wachovia. So his background is very varied. Um, I had the privilege of joining Walter in a small roundtable discussion on the impact that COVID-19 is having on minority-owned banks and black and brown business owners. Uh, I think it's no secret that minority-owned um, businesses are facing a disproportionate share of the impact of uh, business failures resulting from COVID-19 um, and uh, exacerbating the situation that the Small Business Administration has acknowledged um, that uh, sourcing of capital for these kinds of entrepreneurs presents. Um, so our conversation, Walter and I's conversation, landed on the recent enactment um, and funding of what's called the Emergency Capital Investment Program, um, just recently with the 2021 um, COVID-19 relief legislation. There was $9 billion worth of funding earmarked for the um, emergency capital investment program. And so I thought it would be worthwhile for us to sit and have a conversation with Walter about that funding, access to it, and what it means to small business owners, along with minority-owned financial institutions. Tell us, Walter, the U.S. Treasury has historically done to try to close that gap by way of uh, the community investment programs that are available. So, first of all, thanks for having me, Tracy. I really appreciate it. Uh, as I sit here in sunny Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, we always used to brag here we're the second largest financial center next to New York. And I actually still think Charlotte is. And so, as you said, I had the great privilege of working with um, two of the top four largest financial institutions in the country at that time, Bank of America and Wachovia, and did a myriad of things every, uh, and, um, and so from investment banking to community development banking to uh, actually developing real estate for the company. And at Wachovia, I actually ran our um, small business and retail portfolio, which was about $75 billion, which gave me a pretty decent insight 
um, into the activities of the consumer and the small businesses. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the bank that we founded, but um, you're right. So it's been a key recognition probably for the last 50 years that access to capital has just been tough. Access to capital and credit uh, in underserved communities, but especially the black community. Uh, black and brown communities uh, are disproportionately rejected when it comes to credit and accessing capital. And so, oh, I guess about 25 years ago, um, Treasury set up Community Development Financial Institutions Program. And that program was targeted to really increase the flow of capital into these traditionally underserved communities. Um, you had to have, be designated as a CDFI. And it's important to note that not all CDFIs are depository institutions. Some are not. And so when we talk about accessing capital, uh, I think it's important to understand kind of the landscape and what's out there. And I think over the last 25 years, if I'm right, I think Treasury has put out about $3.5 billion or so through this program. Um, it's, it's, I, I think it's been good for some people, uh, but we're still talking about wealth gap issues. Uh, we're still talking about racial wealth gap issues. And so I think as we look over across the landscape now, my big um, concern is that we're not talking about how black and brown people can control the flow of capital more. It's one thing to go hat in hand uh, as it relates to asking for access. It's another thing to go and say, hey, we want to control the act. We want to control the flow because we know how our communities repay. We know what the folks want and need. And so I have been on uh, a big push probably for the last 15, 20 years on really getting folks to understand that controlling the flow of capital is a big deal. So for example, if you think about it right now, uh, when we talk about minority depository institutions, which we're gonna talk about today, think about black owned banks. 20 years ago, 2000, uh, go back to about 2001, 20 years ago, we had about 48 Black-owned banks in this country. Today, we have roughly 19 Black-owned banks in this country. The largest Black-owned bank in the country today, I think, is about a billion dollars in assets. Think about it. We've got trillion-dollar banks and the largest Black-owned banks, a billion. Now, we went out with our bank when we had it. We were up to about two billion, so it's the largest uh, in the history of the country with black folks have ever run. Um, and, uh, and so, but I think, it's, uh, I think it's abysmal when you contemplate that we don't have one, two, three, four, even five black owned banks that are 5 billion in assets or more. And you have to ask yourself the question why. And so when we begin to talk about these different government programs that come out, which we're going to talk about one today, I think we have to look at why aren't we controlling more of this capital? And, uh, I, and if we think about the program you just described, the Emergency Capital Investment Program, I will tell you what really piqued my interest originally about this program. Two things, actually. One, um, the cost of capital. Tier one capital is like the lifeblood of any financial institution. 
when you think about tier one capital, I mean, it's what um, buttresses you against any losses, uh, anything going sideways. And so when I did a um, panel discussion last year up at Treasury for the 155th anniversary um, of the Freedmen's founding of the Freedmen's Bank, which is the first black bank, um, I talked about access to capital, controlling the flow of capital, but more importantly, how do we get black owned banks to have more tier one capital? And so this is why I'm excited about this program. Number one is because if you look at it, it allows the capital that you raise from this program, if you're an MDI or CDFI, either one, to be held on your balance sheet as tier one capital in perpetuity. So there is no prepayment period or repayment period that's out there. It can be held. And the cost of that capital, um, wow. I mean, you start at 200 basis points or 2%. Um, and then, you know, there's a stair step if you put it out into these underserved communities uh, in a way where, call it 200%, um, you know, I think you're down to like 1.25. Uh, and you put it out at 400%, you get down to a half a percent cost of capital. So if you are intending to put this money out there anyway, there is an opportunity for you to have one heck of a low cost of capital for tier one. And uh, I can tell you how important that's been over my years in the industry. And so that's, that's number one that I got excited about. But number two, I was pretty excited about, but I'm, I'm hopeful, fingers crossed on it, that it comes through. Um, there is a, there's a provision that the Treasury said, hey, if you invest, you MDIs, CDFIs, invest in an SBIC, Small Business Investment Corporation, I'd love at some point during the course of this uh, conversation to talk a little bit about SBICs because it's something that is uh, on my mind in a big way. But it was the second thing that I was really big on because you get to count, you, you get to count that investment against this. And so it, it takes that, it takes that cost of capital down when you invest in these SBICs. And for those who don't know SBIC, Small Business Investment Corporations, it's housed under the SBA. It's sort of their, I call it quasi-equity program, which their equity program where they give you a license and you can qualify for two to one or three to one match with that license. So think about it. If I raise uh, $50 million and I have an SBIC license and I go and ask for two to one leverage, they'll give me another 150, so 100 million. So instead of having 50 million, I've got 150 million to play with. And it's a cool program, uh, but again, talk about controlling the flow of capital. There are about 305 or so, I think, SBIC licenses outstanding. Less than five are controlled by Black-owned folks. Less than five. And so when the administration talks about equitable, distribution of wealth and all these other kinds of things. What I'm talking about is controlling the flow of capital so that we control that ourselves. And so some of these programs need to open up. So I was excited, Tracy, when I saw that. Now, what I've been told by the SBA is that there's a little hang up uh, with their attorneys in determining whether or not that money that the MDIs and CDFIs um, 
get can actually be actually be invested as equity into these SBICs. And so I, I, that's a that's a hangup that I hope they get over real quick. They said, oh, you can loan the money, but actually investing it as equity, we're not sure. Um, and the treasury has said, hey, we want to see this capital flow. So my hope is that um, somebody really rings the bell up there and say, hey, guys, you know, here's another opportunity to indirectly get capital into these small businesses that are out there uh, through the SBIC program. Now, I'd like to see more black SBIC licenses uh, that are out there because today, today, less than 1% of that SBIC money goes into black and brown businesses. Well, I'll take that back. Less than 1% goes into black businesses, less than 1% goes into brown businesses. So Tracy, we, we, we've got some structural barriers there that we need to figure out how to overcome even with this pro, even with these programs that we see come to forefront. And I might be jumping the gun, but can I just ask what might be also a very obvious question? Um, and, and you noted earlier that this administration has indicated that they want some you know, accountability or they wanna make sure that those funds or access to these programs are being distributed more broadly, but in particular to black and brown communities. How are they, how would they even go about um, overhauling that process? Or what do you think are gonna be the most effective ways to have accountability in that space? I mean, those numbers you just shared are staggering. I, I can't believe they're that low. Yeah, they, you know, you're exactly right, Tanya. And from my perspective, there needs to be accountability at, in, in, you know, both in Congress and in the administration. So in the last administration, we talked about the Economic Inclusion Task Force. I actually chaired that task force. Um, and, uh, and so it was for U.S. Senator Tim Scott and Vice President Pence at that time. And part of what we started to work with them on was addressing this very issue. And we were coming up with legislation to make it easier for black and brown fund managers to get these funds. Now, time ran out on us and we know the politics that happened in the last administration. So I, we won't even get into that. Um, and look, I, I, I say that, I chaired that task force, but it's, it was a nonpartisan we work across both sides of the aisle. Uh, I am I, I'm a big believer in working across both sides. And so now to answer your question, where we are now, I actually had a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago with Dwight Evans out of Pennsylvania, who is the vice chair of uh, small business over on the house side. He's also on ways and means. And he was actually very supportive of efforts to try in, during the last administration. Now again, politics get in the way of some things, but I'm hopeful um, that we will get some traction here and the president himself, if he's gonna put himself out there needs to recognize that there's this great disparity. I know he knows there's a disparity, but when you begin to talk about things that are in your control, these government programs, I think there's an opportunity here that both Congress and the administration have an opportunity to address uh, in short order. So here's, so if you think about this program that we're talking about, um, the Emergency Capital Investment Program, Tracy, I think you alluded to this up front. They have allocated $9 billion for this program. 
And they have said, I tell you what, we're going to set aside, we're going to set aside $2 billion of it for those institutions that are what, $500 million or less, I think it is, in assets, because they recognize following PPP, the disparity of what occurred and who was able to access that capital from a business standpoint there in the communities that were left out because the institutions that serve these communities first and foremost were left out of that process. And so $9 billion, think about it. I said in 25 years, I think the CDFIs put out maybe three and a half billion. And here we are talking about in one fell swoop, the opportunity to put out $9 billion. Now um, I, I'm being told, and I, and I talk to bank CEOs and others all the time, what I'm being told by some of the MDIs is that one, they plan on um, applying, but some others are kind of going, well, we're not sure, we don't know because it's the traditional distrust of government. Um, we saw what happened with TARP, saw what happened with PPP and it's like, well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I can trust them. And there's probably some validity to that all the way around. Uh, but the beauty of this is that it doesn't hurt to apply. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to take down the money, just apply and let's see how things play out um, over the next month or two. May the 7th, I think is the deadline date uh, for application for this. But I think if folks had a full-fledged effort behind them to make sure that there's accountability so that the regulatory bodies don't change the rules or move the goalpost in the middle of the game, um, which we've seen happen before, uh, that we can, we can actually have a program that meets the needs of these MDIs and others where they can actually build their institutions differently. Look, some are saying with all of the, um, in this world post George Floyd, that they're getting flushed with cash and opportunities from private sector and all of that. Well, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I never heard Warren Buffett say I've got too much money. Um, and so I think that there's an opportunity to understand how to put it to work differently. I, you know, I've got some programs that I'm working with some really large corporations on how to make sure that some of these institutions have at earning assets. You know, it's people talk about deposits. Deposits are fine, but you know what? You've got to be able to put the money to work, the capital and deposits to work uh, by having earning assets. And so making sure that these institutions have the opportunity to put that money to work in a meaningful way is important for all of us in my, in my belief. So let's get down to brass tactics. How do you get, how do you submit and what is it that the uh, requirements are for accessing this capital under the emergency program? So it, it's really easy. Uh, you're either a CDFI or an MDI, um, the, but you're a depository institution. That's, that's you've got to be a depository institution. Uh, and so in the application, I've looked at the application, application process, in, in my opinion, as an old banker is actually uh, pretty easy, um, which is why I encourage people to just apply. Um, and have, I know that Treasury has been having conversations, I think in small groups, um, and trying to really educate folks on this. And so I don't know if it's a lack of 
education on how to apply. I think probably more than anything is the aforementioned that I stated that people like, can I trust this? And, you know, what is it? What, what, what's, what's the catch? You know, it, it, it's what's the catch. And so I think that there are smart attorneys like yourself and others who advise folks and uh, can really help them out. I mean, because I got to tell you, I am I'm concerned that when we don't control the flow of as much capital as we can, I, I gave you the dollars there earlier. I mean, think about it. Uh, I, I mean, and look, credit unions are out there. I mean, if you think about it right now, I think that there are only 24 Black-owned credit unions in the country today. Think about that. I think there are only 24. So again, we're not controlling that flow of capital. And when we have an opportunity to have more of that capital to put into the communities, um, whether it's small business or consumer, I think we, we owe it to ourselves to take advantage of um, at least looking and, and just really studying it real hard and saying, why not? There has to be a good reason why. And, and look, I'm sure there are good reasons why not. For some institutions, uh, I can't speak for everyone. I just know that with the uh, experience I've had, um, if I had a program like this, I would have been all over it when we had our financial institution. And so the application process is, is straightforward. Um, it's, it's really straightforward. And like I said, I just think that folks should, should at least take, it, take a close look at that. And what is it specifically that has to be demonstrated? I know that you, know, you have to be an, an existing CDFI uh, or MDI um, and that they will do a two-year look back to see what kind of loans have been made, contributions to the community have in fact been effectuated. Uh, can you share with us, you know, how to strategize that look back so as to cast it in the best possible light, as well as what obstacles are um, these institutions likely to face in the application process once not only Treasury, but I understand that their regulatory oversight agency too will be involved in the process, um, is involved in, in doing that look back to determine eligibility. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the, um, that's, one of the, that's one of the big questions I think everyone has. So number one, look, as you do a look back, uh, that, I, that's fairly straightforward. You can't say that for the last two years, 80% um, of what we've done uh, has been in census tracts at 100% of median and greater. And then all of a sudden say, okay, now we're going to take it and we're going to do it 60% of median census tracts and 80% of median. So um, it's, you have to have it shown some propensity to be able to serve these communities, which I think is right. Um, and uh, I think that's important. And if you can substantiate what you've done over the last two years, then um, I think you, I think, again, I go back, it's worth it. Um, what are the roadblocks? That's hard to predict, Tracy. When you talk about giving it to the regulatory agencies too, I, I, we talked about the um, distrust 
uh, earlier. And uh, I, I would, I would hate to go out on a limb and say um, that it's that straightforward one way or the other. Um, I, my hope again is that this is something that the administration is behind so that it can be pretty straightforward so that these agencies can be held accountable, agencies can be held accountable uh, for making sure that they are, um, they, that they're proponents of this as well and making sure that as these dollars flow through the institutions the right way. But I, I, that's one of those things that I really stay away from is predicting what government will do <laughs> once you get there. That's a, that's, that, that's a real tough one. But again, it doesn't hurt to apply. I, I go back to it doesn't hurt to apply. When it comes down to taking the money down, you've got to be sure that you know what you're doing. But if in the application process you're approved, you've gone through it, you feel good about it, you've looked at your strategy for deploying the dollars. Um, I think it's again, I'm I, I might be Pollyannish about just the application process, but I don't think it hurts to do that at all. Uh, I think also when you talk about when you talk about these types these type of issues. You made the point earlier about the businesses and this, this is why I'm really big on this. You know, if you think about black owned businesses, McKinsey did a study, you referenced McKinsey, uh, they're a pretty reputable organization. And they said, look, you know what? If we can help fill this gap with black owned businesses access to capital, it could add as much as one point of GDP to our economy. So this isn't a black folks win, brown folks, this is everybody wins when you begin to talk about that. Um, I also read a study they did on the racial wealth gap that said, hey, you know what? If we can really reduce this racial wealth gap, it could add between one and one and a half trillion dollars to our economy by 2028. So see, this isn't a, I feel good or I want to just do that. This is, this is real economics here that we're talking about so that when we can really help these businesses that have been traditionally left out, it's good for the economy and everyone. And you said it coming out of the worst pandemic that most of us have lived through. Tracy, I mean, I think there, there's probably only one or two people living who went through, what was it, 1915 or wherever, the Spanish flu. And so coming out of this, we're going to need new building blocks because we're not going back to an old economy. It's going to be something new. Whatever that new is, all of these businesses are going to need help in access to capital as much as possible, even if they don't know it today. We're going to have to build back differently. Uh, and so I, I'm, look, I'm a big... Um, I'm a big believer in what the president's project um, sort of talking about is infrastructure program. My hope is that we can see some type of infrastructure program. And if we do, guess what those businesses will need to participate in these programs and do this work? They'll need capital. And so this is not some just pie in the sky idea. This is real. And so if we can just connect it all back to the lowest common denominator, which are the people and the businesses on the ground, I think that um, I think we'd have a different look at it. And then look, from my perspective, um, 
I think we need to hold somebody accountable as to the abysmal um, numbers that we've talked about during the course of your program right here. Uh, you know, I think our elected officials, as much as we possibly can, need to know and understand what these numbers are and the um, disparate impact that it's having. So think about CDFIs. I told you not all CDFIs are depository institutions. If I'm, if I'm correct, and I think I'm correct here, there's not a single CDFI, depository or non-depository, that, that is black, that has a national focus or a national footprint, not one. Uh, I know that in the top five, there's one Hispanic um, uh, Raza Development Fund out of Phoenix, which is a phenomenal organization, well-run, Tom Espinosa, CEO. And that group, they, are, they do a phenomenal job over there. And, uh, but that's the only um, Brown CDF I, I know that has a really large footprint nationally. And so again, I go back to this common theme of controlling the flow of capital and how we don't control the flow of capital. I could talk on and on and on about this. I mean, because this has been almost like a life's work for me for a good while now and really grasping this and understanding. I think those numbers are just staggering. And while I consider myself an educated person and someone who is concerned about these issues and, and tries to read as much as I possibly can, I have to admit that prior to this conversation, those numbers were unknown to me. So that is very, very compelling. But I wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of distrust and people uh, or folks being hesitant to avail themselves of these opportunities or this, this program in particular. Um, and my question is, what do you think is the most compelling mechanism for um, for earning that trust or for bridging what might be a financial literacy gap or what, what are the resources available to entities that you know, may be well-intentioned but may have that distrust in terms of working with the government to obtain any of these funds and, and how would folks avail themselves of those, those opportunities? So that's a, good, that's a good question, Tanya. And I don't know that there's any educating that you can do. Um, people look at experience. What is it? Um, don't, don't, don't tell me what you do. I watch what you do. Um, and so, okay. And so it's, so you think about TARP, uh, when you think about, I, again, recent example, just less than a year ago with PPP and these institutions left out of being able to serve their clients, um, the right way. And so it, and so I, Tanya, I don't know that there's any literacy or anything else that can be done. It just has to be shown differently and proven differently for a lot of these folks um, to just become believers because there's just, um, yeah, it, there's just not been a lot that uh, some of them say they can believe in uh, with what the government says in that tradition. Look, it's not just these folks. If you talk to the average person, uh, especially business person, you know, there's some inherent distrust of government there, uh, one way or the other, one way or another. And so this is not unusual 
my my I just again my fingers crossed and my hope is that this is just one of those cases where guess what we're going to do the right thing and we're going to do the right thing all the way through the program not just at the beginning um, and having worked with uh, Treasury and regulators that govern uh, these CDFIs, do you anticipate that um, given that the process is almost being developed as the program unfolds, that their ongoing relationship with regulators will help to sort of create an environment where we can establish a greater degree of trust such that there will be access to, um, or at least an attempt to access uh, this $9 billion. Um, you know, it, it, you're right. You hit a good point. Everything's being, and this, is a, and this is the way it is with most programs when they're rolled out. Things are being developed as they go along. Uh, and I go back to the opportunity in this time frame of applying and, um, and, and before you actually take a dime. Because if you apply, you're approved, there's a little time frame before you take a dime. So there's, there's, there's a little bit of a gap here and an opportunity for you to work uh, in an unprecedented way with, and I tell you, the people who um, really are the decision makers, uh, you, you have a chance to work with them. But I'm big on the elected officials. The elected official, that's why they are elected official. You don't hire the person who is in the regulatory agency. You essentially hire your elected official with your vote. And so if we can make sure that there is an opportunity, and I know the um, CDFIs had, they're, they're pretty organized. And I know the MDIs, you know, the National Bankers Association, the job Kim's doing over there, I think is excellent. And so they're, they're really organized. And what they can do is make sure that they're having these continuous conversations with the folks who are the elected officials. And hopefully the regulators um, are, are um, you know, I, I hope that they are open to this as well and really working with these institutions because the capital, the opportunity to get the capital is there uh, in an unprecedented way. And while the statute seems to have a requirement for the kind of lending plan that has to be submitted by the CDFIs for how they intend to uh, pause the funding to uh, impact the community, um, there seems to be a moving target as to um, the methodologies as well, and not only of effectuating that rollout of capital into the communities, but also uh, in documenting success as a result of that rollout. Now, can you just talk to us about that? Um, you know, the methodologies that are out there and the real need to make certain that before you take that one dime, um, it's real clear what those expectations are on both ends of the equation. That, that really good question, Tracy. And so here's, here's the other interesting part of this program. As the way I'm seeing it, it's all carrot and no stick. 
by that, I mean that if you have a you have a game plan to deploy this capital, and for some reason you get into it and decide, you know what, I want to use my capital deployed a different way, some other way. The penalty for that is just the interest rates you're paying. You're, you're going in knowing I'm doing 200 bips um, or 2% is my cost of capital. There is no penalty for um, sort of, if I thought I was going to deploy 10 million and I only deployed 8 million, there's not some penalty there. Now, what we've got to watch is making sure that those uh, dollars are deployed in the communities that um, they're designated to be deployed into. But if I'm on the other side as an applicant and I, I do my best to sharpen my pen and say, here's how I'm going to deploy this during my application process. And look, reality hits, um, you know, the macro and microeconomic environment plays a role in your ability to be able to do that. And so, but th there is no penalty um, for not sort of chinning the bar the way you thought you would during the application process. And so I think that's different from what I've seen before as well. Um, so I, I, I just say like on the other side, again, making certain that the, the fun, that funds are deployed in the communities the way that we hope they are uh, through this program. And, and can you talk about the acceptable methods of deploying that capital? Because it's not just straight out loans to small businesses. There are other ways that that money can be used. I know we talked about you know, using it uh, for equity purpose, purchases, but um, can you talk about other acceptable ways for those funds to be deployed by the CDFIs and MDIs? Yeah, and, it, and, it, and mostly from my understanding and talking to the folks there, most of it is going to be in the way of loans. I mean, most of the expectation is think about it, um, MDIs uh, or depository institutions, that's what they mainly do, um, especially the small ones. They're not going to be involved in a bunch of derivative trades and all the other kind of exotic uh, financial uh, instruments that are out there. They're going to be pretty straightforward. Um, and so that's why I was hoping for the SBIC piece to be there for the investment piece. And so um, I, um, I, there may be something else there, Tracy, but in my conversations with both Treasury and SBA, the, the idea is to get these dollars into the hands of underserved communities and those communities need loan dollars uh, mostly. And so that's, that's the idea there. And, and it's for not only loans to small businesses, but loans for community development as well. So, you know, whether you're a small business owner and you're looking for a loan um, under this program, it seems that you're also, uh, you could also substantiate the spend uh, or the distribution of capital um, as a CDFC by um, committing that monies to uh, a community-based development project. I mean, oh yeah, multifamily project. Um, you've got an opportunity to do lease financing receivables. You've got an opportunity to give loans to individuals. You know, for households, families, other personal expenditures, commercial and industrial loans. Um, I mean, you've got a host of things in there. I think I read somewhere where you know you can actually do some 
refinancing of loans as long as it uh, takes uh, um, the principal amount up at least 20%. Um, so there's some, there. It, it's, look, it, it's pretty open um, as to what you can do there uh, in the types of loans, but most of them, as I said, are going to be loans um, that, are, that are out there. So yeah, and the SBIC piece is the one piece that's the investment of equity into the program that we're hoping to get. And any concerns um, that, that are raised in your mind by the uh, method for collateralizing uh, those disbursements uh, by Treasury through use of whether it's a preferred senior preferred stock or um, uh, some type of uh, secured debt? Um, any concerns, priority debt, is there any concerns there uh, on, to your mind, by uh, a CDIF engaging in, you know, allowing the government to essentially become a stockholder of the institution? Yeah, um, this is where I think some of the um, historical distrust comes in, but in my mind, I think as uh, it's just like they're any other shareholder um, subordinated debt or pref um, or you know however you however you structure uh, their ownership in it. Again, I go back to it's perpetual, and so I and maybe you uh, as an attorney have seen it, but I don't see any callable provisions uh, in there, and that's what I would be. That's what I would be worried about. Um, as it relates to if I were on the other side of trying to get these dollars, um, if there are any callable provisions or something like that that's in there, which I haven't seen, but again, I don't, I, I don't claim to be a 100% expert since they're making this up as they go along. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that, that's where I would, I would have a concern, but I don't, I don't see any, don't see any need for concern there. Now, I think there's um, I think they built in a mechanism whereby they can actually sell their interest. Um, now, I think that that's, I've seen that before generally in um, treasury programs and uh, they do that a lot. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's an immediate secondary market there, but they want the ability to be able to do that if they need to or feel that they want to. Uh, there and so um, so yeah that was in some of the municipal programs that we just saw uh, that the Fed did out there along with Treasury that I thought you know were great programs to bring to the forefront and I've got to tell you I wish your program had been out last year when all of the I, there were so many programs that people did not hear about. I, um, I was doing a couple of YouTube videos and that kind of thing to talk about some of the municipal lending programs that were out there, uh, PPP before it hit, because we worked, we worked with them on that. And, uh, and so the more information people have uh, prior to or early on, instead of after the fact, I think the more opportunity we have to see success in these programs, especially with the institutions that have been traditionally left behind. And so these are the ones that we're that I think they're targeting uh, in this program. And so Tracy, yeah, there is um, I, I I it for me from an old banker, bank CEO, all that good stuff. It 
it looks pretty straightforward. Again, as long as they don't move the goalpost in the middle of the game, from what I see so far, uh, I, would I wouldn't have any issues with it. And um, I know recently there were interim rules that were uh, adopted um, without the normal process for adopting administrative um, rules uh, by a Treasury that restricts executive compensation, share buybacks and dividends. Can you speak to us about what those regulations are going to do operationally to an institution that's looking to participate in this program? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, in order, whenever you have an opportunity to get more capital, um, in fact, more, think about it, tier one capital, if you're six, eight, 10, 12% tier one capital, you have an opportunity to put money to work in a different way. And for a lot of these institutions, you know, it would have been an opportunity to really hire some talent that you haven't been able to afford in the marketplace uh, because it's business that still begins and ends with people. And I think top tier talent uh, is at a premium out there. And uh, I don't have a firm hold on what these restrictions will mean for that. Um, you know, that usually is the C-suite CFO kind of thing, restriction on executive comp. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons we were, we were going through last year. And there are a couple of industries that said thanks, but no thanks um, to government money. With <laughs> And we saw CEO compensation, we know why, right? Um, I saw those numbers the other day. Uh, and, uh, and so I don't know what that means for these institutions. I don't, I don't know that they play ball in that same category, but I think it's something for them to think about um, uh, as, they're, as they're doing their calculus on whether or not to accept again. Doesn't hurt to apply, let's see it play out, whether or not you choose to accept the dollars. Um, that's a totally different story. But yeah, I don't know what restrictions because everyone has their own business plan, Tracy. And, uh, and so it depends upon whether or not it would restrict you in your business plan. And I think the boards of directors would look at that as well uh, as the executives to determine um, what impact, if any, it would have on their future plans. Is that helpful? Is that kind of? No, that's extraordinarily helpful. Um, you know, uh, the rules uh, are still being developed, despite the fact that the interim rule was just, I mean, literally last month was uh, published by the Department of Treasury. And um, I think that we're going to see once the industry has an opportunity to weigh in, uh, you did mention a couple of uh, associations that have been involved in organizing around the CDFIs as well as MDIs. Um, and we'll see whether or not there's any pushback on some of the restrictions that have been found um, in the recent interim rule. Um, I think it's important for us to also talk about 
once you've accepted the money, once you've received the funds, how do you set up internally the kinds of internal controls to make certain that um, this in perpetuity arrangement doesn't run afoul of uh, the regula regula regulations and the regulators' um, oversight and involvement so that it doesn't create a problem down the road. So I guess my question should start with what kind of team do you think needs to be assembled in um, making certain that the application um, is uh, uh, on all fours? There's nothing in uh, the submission that you know may not uh, necessarily be on all fours as far as what the current operations look like, as well as the program's uh, implementation uh, over the, the two-year look-back period, um, as well as uh, putting internal the controls that are needed to make certain that going forward, that plan that's proposed to the regulators by the uh, CDFIs, by the MDIs, is in fact the goalpost um, for uh, implementing once that funding is let. So uh, I probably think a little bit differently on this. Um, my, um, my thoughts are this. If you are applying uh, and to your point, there's a two year look back, that means you're already in this business today. You, are, you should be doing exactly this business today. Um, and you should have already have the right internal controls on um, the right staffing model. Now, you may say this gives me an opportunity to actually beef up my staffing model because we're going to put some more dollars to work, which I think, which we talked about that a little bit. And I think that is, um, that's perfect. Uh, I know the monitoring, uh, you know, that, that should be a part of your compliance and accounting functions today. I know that there's, I think, a sort of a provision where for two years, you don't have to pay the dividend. Uh, but then I think, I, I'm assuming the dividend is quarterly or annually, I don't know, uh, after the two-year period. But again, these are, these are things that in your, if you're functioning uh, properly, that you're going to do anyway. So it's just a matter of putting it in the format that folks are requiring to be able to take a look at it and say, okay, you're either charged 200 BIPs, 125 BIPs, or 50 BIPs. Um, and that, I think, is the key for you to be successful in driving down your cost of funds there, uh, your funding costs. But um, I, I don't know that I do a heck of a whole lot different, Tracy, if I've got the right checks and balances in place today and I'm doing the lending that I say. If I'm going to get into a new business line, maybe I wasn't doing multifamily before or any of that, then I'd make sure I've got all of that right. But, um, but from a compliance, because I think what you're talking about, part of it is compliance. Um, and I don't, I don't know that you would have to do too much more. Um, I think you, you just apply for the maximum, whatever your maximum is, depends upon um, a lot of factors there as to what your max is, but no, ma'am, no, 
I, I wouldn't see too many new um, controls being put in place except to beef up staffing if, if I were gonna really say I'm gonna put my foot on the accelerator as it relates to putting the money to work. Okay, um, and particularly with uh, respect to the restrictions on executive compensation, um, uh, buybacks, uh, dividend distributions, uh, can you envision uh, the board as well as management taking a different approach to, uh, to managing the organization such that there aren't concerns raised uh, uh, regarding you know, the amount of compensation that executives uh, at the institution may receive when dividends are distributed, um, how uh, or when, at, if at all, um, buybacks occur with in or within the organization. Can you talk to us about whether you envision the board itself or management itself taking on, you know, additional oversight in order to ensure that they don't run afoul of these restrictions? You know, that again, another great point, I think, um, remembering the difference that the board is about governance and management is about execution in the day-to-day -day business. Um, I would think that the board would want some type of report out. If you take, um, you know, whoever takes the money, hey, are we making sure that we're compliant in every way um, so that we don't run afoul of the rules, whatever those, the final rules tend to be. Um, but I could, only in the, you know, only in the usual reporting out uh, that you do uh, from an audit committee standpoint, et cetera, that I can see them making sure that, you know, you're just, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Now, you talk about share buybacks. Um, I don't know, um, I haven't seen many of these smaller institutions, the MDI, I'll speak to the MDIs, doing share buybacks. I mean, that's something that, you know, the big boys do with, uh, you know, that, I think one and a half trillion dollars of um, share buybacks we saw major corporations do. I don't know how many of these small institutions uh, really get into that, um, but I would I would guess, Tracy, um, that we wouldn't see too much of that because if you're taking this money, you're up for growth. You want growth, and so when it comes time for you to say, "Hey, you know what? This has been great. I'm six years into this." We got tier one capital is up. This has been fantastic. Uncle Sam, we're going to pay you back um, all your principal amount because this, is, this has been good. Uh, and so we paid you your dividend uh, as we were supposed to each year. Now we're going to pay you back. And so, um, so we're going to put your money back to you. No issues there. And then you go on your merry way and do what you want to do. It's an for me, I would take it as an opportunity to grow the business in a way that maybe I was not planning to or wouldn't have the capital to grow it substantially over the next three to five years during my three and five year planning period. And, uh, and if you do that and then you're out of it, um, I think it's served its purpose for you. And then those things that you talked about, Tracy, whether it's executive comp, whether it's stock buyback, uh, dividend, whatever the case may be, those no longer become an issue. Um, I've used the money the way I thought I would use it, need it, how I need it, 
and now uh, I'm going to give it back to the taxpayers. And uh, I guess my only other question to you is, do you, in looking not even so far down the road, do you hope to see technology play a role in helping to facilitate not only the compliance aspect, because I can see many uses uh, for technology in that sense, but in actually providing the funding to those who are in need. Yeah, you know, here's here's where I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of movement among the fintechs right now. Um, and I am uh, being an old traditional banker, but having a hat in this new world, um, I, I think being a financial institution with robust digital capability is extremely important. Uh, it's going to be tough. I mean, just tough. Remember 20 years ago, 48, now 19 black owned banks. And that wasn't all due to consolidation because the numbers would be different from an asset uh, component. The relevancy, you, you have to continue to be relevant in this economy because you're still competing for business. And so I think you're dead on with the technology piece uh, and I would think, I, I would, I don't know what the uh, larger CDFIs who are depository institutions are doing. I mean, you think about it, um, Bank of America, I think has a CDFI as well as Fargo, not sure. Those are at a different level. That's, that's something totally different. But at the end of the day, you bring up a point that I think um, MDIs and others need to contemplate is the technology platform that you're able to build to compete is just extremely important. And so this might be a way for you to free up some other dollars to put towards that, that I think would be extremely important for you because if you wanna be around in another 20 years, um, the robust digital capabilities is gonna be important. Uh, it's, it's, that's just an is, we're not gonna go backwards on that. So my hope is that technology will play a role in the undergirding of everything we do. You know, think about it. We talk about fintech, but we think about those that are, you know, kind of the lending clubs and others. Now, fintech is, to me, robust digital capability that's uh, sort of has to be a given, just like we talk about health tech and just like we talk about all these other technology. I think what you just said is, um, is a key. Every single one of these institutions should be thinking about you know, you could have a whole show on, you know, technology platforms and capabilities in these institutions and how do they um, get up to speed so that they can really compete. And part of it has been dollars spent in technology. Costs a lot of money. Um, not as much as when I was doing it every day uh, to really, but we invest in a few businesses that do. But technology is a big thing. Technology is really is. It's it is, it's no longer in and out of business itself. It's a part of every business. And you, your, your experience is, is that uh, the CDFIs and the MDIs are lagging somewhat behind. If you're not, you know, in the Wells Fargo, Bank of America category, I mean, is this one area where you think that the kind of, I, 
infrastructure infrastructure investment is critically important to preparing them to provide the kinds of access to capital uh, from here now that technology is such an integrated part of providing these kinds of financial services in our economy? Yeah, yes, I do. Um, here's, here's my thinking, Tracy. Um, when we, when you, and the reason we talk about numbers and I talk about the fact that we don't have $5 billion black owned bank, not one, four billion, two billion, three billion dollar black owned bank, in order to have and pay for the right type of infrastructure, economies of scale come into play. So you've got to pay for all the regulatory pieces that you have, regulatory burdens you have from a financial institution standpoint. If you're going to have the technology you're talking about, you have to scale to be able to pay for all of these things. And so that's why when I talk about whatever the regulatory burdens are or the systemic issues are in keeping these institutions at a lower asset base, you're really stymieing them from being able to be competitive uh, in, you know, from 20 years ago to today, don't talk about 20 years from now. And so I think that that is just extremely important. Uh, and I, the scaling becomes just really critical to pay for the infrastructure to really serve the client like you, Tanya, and I, and what we want right now. I mean, think about, well, we don't go now to a bank branch often. I can't speak for the two of you, but you know, it, it, robust capability. I was like, pull up a little app right on my phone, transfer, do what I need to do. Think about that. That, that. That's what you're competing for. I don't care who you are. Now, people say, well, you know, a lot of underserved communities don't have that. Well, go to, a, go to underserved communities today. There ain't a single person you see that doesn't have a phone, a iPhone, right? I mean, I mean, I'm telling you. Well, I mean, this is what has happened in, you know, there were, countries around the world where it was tough to get them the financial services and other things, they used it via the phone from micro lending to everything else. And so technology plays a role in that. And the rails that you have or that we have are important. And uh, I think that that is what, what you're hitting on there outside of people, capital, that technology piece is extremely it's important. I call it the fourth piece. You know, it's people, process, capital, and technology. And uh, that's what you're hitting on right there. And so I think that uh, I think that it's extremely important in order to in order to compete for the future. Exactly. Um, and I just hope to see that some component of this program is utilized to help build up the technological infrastructure for um, these CDFIs and MDIs to keep up, keep up with what the current market demands and expects, um, especially if this is the infrastructure through which minority-owned businesses are funded, are uh, able to access loans are capable of, 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 of obtaining capital. Um, and so it's incumbent upon, I think, 
the administration to the extent that there are objectives to, um, to factor the technology gap along with the equity gap. Um, yeah, and I, I was gonna ask, um, you know, I know a lot of the other agencies as it relates to FinTech issues generally have formed sort of working groups and, um, you know, task force within the agency or interagency to better understand for their own purposes and needs how technology is working. And I'm curious to know, um, if, if you're aware of, you know, anything similar around this program where perhaps Treasury is working with, you know, one or more of the other agencies and brought in members of the, the business community in terms of big tech companies or even medium tech companies, right, who want to partner and, and put their efforts behind ensuring that, um, that these CDFIs, you know, have, have the technology uh, access that they need, or at least are being kept in the loop about these discussions? So that's a good question. Um, I know that in the last minute, last administration, there was conversations around just that particular um, subject, Tanya, as it relates to the technology platforms, uh, especially with the MDIs. I, I don't know where that stands now. Um, and, uh, and so, but I, it, it's recognized. It's recognized as an issue. Um, if they want to continue, if these institutions and we want them to survive and thrive, not just survive, but to thrive, uh, that's going to have to be something. Now, um, I will tell you, the more capital that you have, the more you can do. I, that, just at the end of the day. And so it's um, how these institutions choose to utilize the capital, put um put money to work so that they have earning assets and invest uh, in their platforms. Because look, as a small business person, you don't want to finance a small business then they outgrow you. I mean, if you don't have the robust treasury management capabilities to be able to do what they need when they need to do it, um, that's an issue. Uh, if you don't have the merchant services for them, that's, that's, that's an issue. Uh, and so I think that if we're going to continue to see these uh, institutions grow, they need to be focused on it. Um, and I don't know where the administration sits in all of this. Uh, I think that there is a, there's probably, I'm sure there are meetings going on that I don't know about. Uh, I'm certain there are actually, uh, but I, I still talk to folks quite a bit um, <laughs> in pretty high places over there. Uh, and so um, this is one of those things that my hope uh, is that they continue to do it. But look, I am glad that at least they came out and attempted with this program. No matter what happens, you know, when I think uh, when it's Chris Weaver and those guys, when he came up with the program, because I worked with Chris in the last administration, he was doing a stint at SBA, and now he's back over in Treasury, and a very open-minded guy. And and he won't ever admit it, but I think he's the architect behind all of this. Um, and I, I, you have good, you have good people. You know, we talk about regulators. We talk about folks who are part of what we call the quote-unquote bureaucracy. There are actually some really good people who want to see the right thing done that are in there. Like anywhere else, there are also others because you know we all have our inherent biases, conscious or unconscious, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, but there are some really good people who want to see this work the right way. 
Um, and my hope is that these good people keep coming up with great ideas and working with those of us from the outside who have a little bit of experience in this stuff uh, to be able to come up to be able to come up with just great solutions. And look, not everything's going to work. Um, you don't expect it to, but guess what? You've got to keep trying. That doesn't mean you stop trying. Thank you for that, Walter. Um, and I'm certain that we can uh, count on you as well as the members of our CIFARTH team here to keep a mindful eye on how things develop with the emergency capital investment program uh, to see how we can help our clients to access that capital um, as well as to make certain that even the downstream clients are able to access the CDIFs as well as the MDIs so that they too can you know, reap the benefits of um, the $9 billion that, that's out there right now. Um, so I wanna thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us on this critically important topic. And um, we'll look to keep in touch so that to the extent that we can provide more information, uh, give uh, more of an in-depth uh, understanding of how the rules and regulations evolve as they are developing um, is something that we can bring um, as well to our listeners. So Tracy and Tanya, thank you for what you're doing and bringing this to your listeners out there. It is. Um, it's, it's one of those much needed things. And look, I've enjoyed speaking with you. And so hope you have an opportunity to have me back again at some point to chat with you about what's going on out here in this world uh, of um, finance. Uh, it's pretty broad right now. So, but uh, I really appreciate you guys listening to me ramble a bit about, you know, not just access to capital, but controlling the flow of capital. And so uh, I, I hope we, we keep that in mind. So thank you. Thank you again for what you're doing. And I appreciate the time today. Thank you. Now we're going to count on having you back. So <laughs> for sure. No, not hopefully that's what you got. Hopefully this is something that was helpful to you guys. Please join us for our next episode where we will be joined by our partner, Andrew Sherman of Cypher Shaw's DC office. Andrew is a legal and a strategic advisor to early stage, rapid growing startups and other closely held mid-market companies who are looking for capital formation and other types of financing. Andrew will help us to explore further the emergency capital investment program and access to capital by small businesses and minority owned businesses through the CDIF MDI program. So please join us.